You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Howard Levy, medical geneticist in Lutherville, Maryland, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host today, and with me is Dr. Cynthia Morton, the 2014 president of the American Society of Human Genetics and a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Our topic today is genetics and uterine fibroids. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So, what's new in the field of genetics and uterine fibroids? Well, we're busy trying to find genes that underlie the biology of these tumors and also looking for risk alleles that might predispose women to develop uterine fibroids. And how do you do this work? There are a couple different ways. We've, over the years, taken a very traditional approach of karyotyping tumors that are removed from the uterus and... Um, we find that some of them have very characteristic rearrangements, and we've used those rearrangements to then clone the genes that are either disrupted or dysregulated at the breakpoints. And then in the more recent past, we've been able to use genetic uh, approaches such as linkage analysis and genome-wide association studies where you're using large um, numbers of subjects to look for genes that would predispose a woman to develop uterine fibroids. And what are you learning? So we have identified a number of genes over the past uh, 15 years or so that uh, have told us something about how these tumors are able to dysregulate their growth genes so that you have the average number of tumors per uterus in a woman is six to seven, and they're present in about 75 or more percent of women of um, reproductive age, but fortunately only a third of those, but that's still a huge number, um, are symptomatic such that they end up going to their physician for some type of problem, which would include something like abnormal uterine bleeding or pelvic pain. The other problems are things that aren't things that women like to talk about too much, like incontinence or constipation, just because of the physical um, placement of the tumors themselves. So we are also, um, our, our most recent work has been focused on trying to find genes that might not have been illuminated by chromosome rearrangements and that, that are ones that predispose some women to, de to develop uterine fibroids, perhaps at an earlier age of onset, um, or you see that there are more women in, the, in a family affected with uterine fibroids. So by doing a combination of genetic linkage analysis and genome-wide association studies, we have found a region of the genome, um, and this has been a collaboration between group at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Queensland Institute for Medical Research where we validated our findings in a population of women in Australia. And these are women who are self-reported white women uh, because we know that these tumors have a health disparity for black women, but we don't have enough black women to in our study to 
empower the analysis. We're very interested to get black women to participate in our study. Uh, but because of the limited numbers, we uh, will really restrict that the finding that we have that we're following up is one that we believe predisposes self-reported white women uh, to develop uterine fibroids. And that's an important lesson that I think a lot of people don't realize about genetics, that we still need to think about genetic findings in the context of someone's ancestry to, uh, to strengthen the association and, and to feel more comfortable in the predictions that we make. And I think we already know something about that from the karyotyping we've done because there's a characteristic rearrangement that we have studied for many years, which we don't see in the tumors that we've karyotyped from black women, whereas there is another abnormality that we see frequently both in black and white women. So there may be shared pathways to develop uterine fibroids as well as some that are uh, more prevalent in a particular ethnic group than another. So you've put some numbers out there that, that frankly were larger than I actually realized in my own practice, that 75% of women have uterine fibroids whether or not they're symptomatic. One could argue that if they're that common, why bother doing any genetic testing? Or are we looking at a possibility of testing women to identify who might not be at risk rather than those who might be at risk? Um, I haven't thought about it um, from that perspective before. I mean, they are common, but uh, again, not all women are symptomatic, so you wouldn't necessarily need to do a procedure to manage tumors if there are no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we're really looking looking toward that population of women who need some management, which in the most uh, burdensome cases is largely hysterectomy. Sure. That it leads to hysterectomy. So I guess a better way that I should have asked the question is, what's the value of this research to physicians and women? How can we use this to improve health? So essentially, the the treatment is hysterectomy. And for a woman who is, for example, having such severe uh, bleeding that results in anemia and um, and it's you know, certainly impacts the quality of life, not only from the standpoint of um, being in the position of having potentially socially embarrassing bleeding, um, and it also interferes with sexual intimacy in that sure. there's the bleeding and, and as well as and pain. As I'm sure. pain. Yes. Um, so uh, what we would like to see is that there's a, a medical therapy as well as the, the option of surgical mm -hmm. management. And how is the genetic testing helping to get us there? So the genetic testing is helping us because it's pointing out in, in our most recent studies, which are being presented as I'm speaking with you right now. Here at the American yeah, Society of Human meeting, Genetics meeting. Um, by my postdoc, Zara Ordelou in which we have taken the findings from the linkage genome-wide association studies, which are indicating that there's a region of the genome and a particular allele that's associated with, with predisposition to uterine fibroids. And when we look at that region of the genome, there are three genes there. Uh, one that we think is a particularly good candidate. They're all very closely linked, so they're all equally um, good candidates, except that one really 
jumps out, and that's a gene known as fatty acid synthase. And fatty acid synthase is uh, known to be expressed um, incorrectly or at an elevated level in various neoplasms. So it's already recognized to be something that's associated with tumors. So um, what we found is that when we looked at the levels of fatty acid synthase in matched tumors and the normal uterine muscle, the myometrium, that women who had this risk allele in that locus um, expressed fatty acid synthase at about threefold higher level um, than their myometrium. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University, and I'm speaking with Dr. Cynthia Morton, the 2014 president of the American Society of Human Genetics and a professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're talking about genetics and uterine fibroids. Cynthia, tell us more about this particular genetic finding and how that might improve therapeutic options for women with symptomatic fibroids. We found that fatty acid synthase could be potentially a gene that we're we're looking at in, in terms of its elevated expression in women who develop uterine fibroids. So actually and, contributing to the production of that fibroid or those fibroids. That's right. And it, and it could, again, there are probably many genes that, that contribute to the development of uterine fibroids, and this might just be one player among 100 genes. And so this would be relevant to women who have an abnormal expression of, of fatty acid mm-hmm. synthase. So, so not necessarily all women with fibroids. Not necessarily all women Do you have a with sense fibroids. of what percentage of women with symptomatic fibroids this appears to be significant in? We don't have that. Um, not yet, anyway. Not yet. Um, but the really exceptional um, observation here is that we already, there's already a drug on the market that, that targets fatty acid synthase, and it's used for obesity, and it's known as Oralistat. So there's something that has already gone through clinical trials, and in fact, this drug is over the counter. Um, You can buy it at Costco. I see this in the ads that come from um, Costco. It's Mm -hmm. known as Alley. So the, it's not as simple as then just saying, I'm going to start taking this this drug for No, this is a drug that's not without side effects either. No, there actually this there are minimal side effects with this, but the bioavailability is in the GI tract mm-hmm. and not in into the uterus, where that's where we would need to think about making this drug um, mm-hmm. available. So you can think of, I think very easily, uh, ways in which you could provide that drug into the uterine cavity by something like an IUD. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would be ways to deliver the drug in, into the uterus. We still have a lot of um, experiments to do in terms of knowing what to- toxicity in the uterus might be very different than toxicity in the GI tract, for example. So there's, although we were able to come to that part, you know, the drug possibility very quickly, it would be we love to think of how we can repurpose drugs these days. Uh, it, it will. There's, there's still some serious work to be done to, to definitely, to, yeah, to bring it into mm-hmm. um, clinical use. But we have a 
passion to make this happen for women's health. And so the next step in that is that we developed a tissue culture system where we were able to figure out what, how, how delivering oral statin to the fibroid cells, would it decrease the, the growth of these cells? And we established that. And So it is doing that at least in vitro. In vitro, it's working. Mm-hmm. And we've just finished our first in vivo experiment by taking human uh, fibroid cells and implanting them in an immunocompromised mouse and then delivering subcutaneously the, the drug. And we're still in the process of evaluating the, the results of that first experiment. But I think, you know, it's likely that regardless of the results of the first experiment, we need to do it again. Um, And so that's the path we're on right now, as well as thinking about, you know, what all would be involved to take this into the clinic, Um, Mm -hmm. especially knowing that there was probably a ton of paperwork that would would have to be done. And and what is that paperwork so that once we have that mouse experiment data um, and feel confident about it, that we can move forward. Translate it to human health as quickly as possible. Sure. So this is a great exciting story about how genetic discovery can give new insight into treatment opportunities and the possibility to move that to real health changes quickly. Something that we've hyped in our genetics field for years as the promise of genetic medicine. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- it's a great story about how it can work, but clearly we need to, to advise women not to jump too far ahead of the game. Shouldn't be going out and buying this product today to try to treat their fibroids. That's absolutely correct because the drug as it is currently marketed is for the treatment of obesity. Um, and we have no uh, evidence that if you were to take this drug now that it would do anything valuable for alleviating Alleviating the symptoms alleviating of one's the symptoms fibroids. of uterine fibroids. That's mm-hmm. absolutely correct. So at this point, still some hope for the future and very exciting hope. What else are you learning from these research studies? So um, another thing that we're interested in is knowing whether we could predict whether those tumors in, in a woman's uterus, whether one of them could be a malignant tumor. And uh, for example, there's... There are some uterine fibroids that are thought to become malignant, and they are known as uterine leiomyosarcoma. So if we were successful in developing this drug therapy for uterine fibroids to reduce their size, we would like to know that we're not, you know, promoting using a drug where there, when there was a malignant tumor in the uterus. Now, these where surgery are, would be preferred, of and course. And surgery would be a better option. So these tumors are very rare, let me say that to begin with. The, the uterine leiomyosarcomas, they're tumors that are not well treated at this point. Um, but so, we don't need our patients to be concerned that every fibroid might be malignant. Most are not malignant. We don't want to raise concern here. That is absolutely the case. And I think you can just gather that by the numbers. You know, there wouldn't be very many women with, if, if, if 75% of the women mm-hmm. who had uterine fibroids also had a malignant tumor. So mm-hmm. that's absolutely the case. So I understand you've got at least some early evidence that there may be ways to detect the more concerning, although rare, leiomyosarcomas? So we're very interested to know whether the fibroids and potentially the uterine um, leiomyosarcomas would shed DNA into the peripheral circulation and whether the future 
uh, for even deciding whether a woman should should take something like Orlistat would be to draw a blood sample and look at what genetic signatures might be in that blood sample that are reflecting DNA from the, the tumors in the uterus. That sounds very exciting. And it sounds like that actually could apply well beyond just uterine fibroids as well. Absolutely. I think we don't know the whole spectrum of what tumors might be uh, detectable in the peripheral blood, but you know, if you fast forward, you could think of whether um, a technology like this might be something that would become part of your annual physical, especially as we, we know that cancer is a disease that occurs with aging, and maybe at some point it would be recommended that you, you have this type of a blood test to sort of screen for any tumor that you might not even, you know, you don't even know that you, you have, because there's one thing for sure, we know that early detection is really important in terms of having a, a successful management of a, of a tumor. So potentially both the cancers we screen today, such as breast cancer, as well as the more challenging ones, prostate or ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, this holds potential to maybe improve our detection rate and treatment there. Absolutely. Very exciting. Very exciting. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Cynthia Morton, the 2014 president of the American Society of Human Genetics, professor of obstetrics and gynecology and pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We've been discussing genetics and uterine fibroids. I'm your host, Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University. Please join us next time. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download this segment and others in the series at reachmd.com genetics. Thank you for listening.